You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is a podcast from comedianscomedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. And before we enjoy this conversation with Maeve Higgins, just time for me to tell you about my tour. I'm into the second quarter of the tour now, and I'm going to be visiting the following places very soon. Reading, Corsham, McHuncliffe, Bristol, Bath, Norwich, Northampton, Warwick, Shrewsbury, Swindon, Farnham, Aldershot, Sheffield, York, Newcastle, Leeds, Southampton... Cambridge, Edinburgh, Glasgow, Birmingham, Brighton, London, Tring and Cardiff. We just threw in Tring as the penultimate one there as a bit of a dafty. So if you fancy coming along and seeing my stand-up show, Like I Mean It, one of the 20 best-reviewed comedy shows at last year's Edinburgh Festival, get yourself to comedianscomedian.com forward slash tour. Now, a conversation with Maeve Higgins that I recorded at South by Southwest, the incredible interdisciplinary tech, music, art, comedy festival that takes place in Austin, Texas every year. I was enormously excited to be invited to go along there and check out some of the incredible stuff that they have on offer. Um, There was an awful lot of robot arms. I'll tell you about that later. Uh, But there was also fabulous comedian Maeve Higgins, uh, formerly of Ireland, now relocated to New York. And I can't wait for you to hear what she has to say. This is the brilliant and very funny Maeve Higgins. I've never been to Texas before. Yeah. This is your first South by Southwest as well. It is, yeah, yeah. I think I remembered as I was coming here and we drove by a barbecue place, I was like, I've eaten there before. So I think I was here before with Eugene Merman for um, a Star Talk taping, which is like a science and comedy live podcast. Okay. But the, I didn't remember that. I just remember that we had had like this good barbecue. Because if you like, <laughs> if you go on the road with Eugene, like it's basically like a gastronomical tour. Oh man. He knows every like the best Szechuan spot, like the best pizza spot. Like he just is a real foodie and that's obviously heaven. Yes. You know? Yeah, that's, I think, I, I believe that uh, Ross Noble and his friends, who are also his crew, just ride motorbikes all the time. It's like <laughs> they get, there's no gear. So they just, they just go, oh, this gig, and then an amazing motorbike thing. Yeah, like yeah. like a 3D version of that sounds fun. Yeah, like I wouldn't be able to be in Ross Noble's gang because I'm not, in, you know, I wouldn't ride a bike. Like I'd just be like, be careful, you know. Yeah. And also we have very different styles of comedy. Whereas like with Eugene, I think I, I love his comedy and also just like, I'm so down to just like eat um, heavy meals. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is, I, t- tell me how long you've been in America, because I think one of the, one of the things I particularly want to talk to you about is how non-American your act is. 
Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I think of yeah. the, the, the Americans that I see come to the UK and a lot of them with the, the ones that I see here at South By, um, which is what the cool kids are calling it. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, it, it's always seemed to me that their stand-up is very punchy and gag-driven. And that mm. is sort of the opposite. I, can't, I mean, I'm not saying you don't have gags. Of course you do. You've got good, good great joke structure. But yeah, that girl's got gags. Yeah, <laughs> but it's... But your stuff is so sort of deliberately meandering. And do you know what I mean? I, I just love that. And it seems to have made no concession at all to the fact that you're in the States. So tell me about how far back shall we go? How long have you been doing comedy? Let's do a potted history. Okay, we'll so I've been doing it. comedy for 11 years. Started in Ireland and in Dublin and then uh, lived in London for a year, like I guess five years ago. And then from London came, lived, now live in New York for the past four years. So my stand-up has dropped off in that time. Like I was definitely more of a, a stand-up and doing all the festivals for years and mm. all that stuff. And like you say, not very, you know, set up punchline, like more of a kind of storyteller who like forgets halfway through and tries to, you know, that's my style I've discovered over the years. Yes. Um, and yeah, so I guess, yeah, 11 or is it even 12 years now? I don't know. And I've been in America for four. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and what prompted the move to America? Well, it was, I always had like a romantic thing in my head about being a writer in New York City. And so I always wanted to do that and, and do more writing and, it's the distance from Ireland is quite healthy. I think it's like 5,000 miles and like, it's like a five hour trip. So it's not like crazy far from home, but it's like far enough that I could get some perspective and like be anonymous myself in, in New York. And, um, now I think the more pertinent question for me, (laughs) for your audience (laughs) is like, why would I stay here? And now it's like a very interesting time to be here. And okay. to be living in America as an outsider um, and watch what's happening here and be in a lucky position that I'm in to like comment on it and write about it and try and figure it out as it's happening. Okay. Mm-hmm. And do you feel that, I mean, because obviously what's happening here with regard to Trump and the, you know, the way that that's, that's kind of specifically what you mean? The yeah, I do. I mean, kind I, of emboldened I, the right. Yeah. And I think that it's, um, you know, it's just a fascinating time. It's kind of maybe the end of the American empire and <laughs> like their imperialism has to come to a stop now. And it's just fascinating to see that happen. And it's also really tragic, um, like all these big endings are. And I think that's um, what's keeping me here now. You know, what? I'm really interested in immigration too and to see how um, immigrants are being treated here and to just bear witness to like, the the unfolding horror dog <laughs> big picture is like astounding to me yeah is there any difference in the way that you're treated as an immigrant oh hugely i think that's why i got so interested because comics who want to come and work here um especially white people and europeans are more likely to get it apply for the uh alien of extraordinary ability visa which is called the o1 which lets you come here, you have to prove that like you're better than, <laughs> that you're like this magical angel who has skills that nobody else does. And you basically get letters from your fancy friends in high up places and you get like some pages of press that you've collected. Okay, okay. So I, I, so I haven't realised those, like those additional things. I didn't realise he was trying to reduce legal migration as well. So is that what you mean by the end of the empire? Like the, that's the whole idea well, I of mean, America, isn't it? Isn't that the... 
the basic idea of America is send me all your... Yeah, I mean, it's like, that's the idea of America. You can definitely argue that that was never the case because it's a country that was built on genocide and slavery. (laughs) But like, I think seeing, seeing America from the inside where like all these kind of ideas about itself are crumbling and then seeing it on the outside where it's losing face on a, you know, international scale every day. Now, you know, this might date the podcast, but like now, you know, he's going to go and meet Kim Jong-un and it's like, a former American leader would never have done that, you know. So it's seeing it happening from the inside and the outside. I think America's power worldwide is really um, fading. And here, like the um, the the day after Trump got elected, like the most, uh, the stocks that rose the highest were in uh, immigrant prisons. Like, so like, it's a very uh, money-based too. Like the whole thing is really sort of, Oh, gross, <laughs> like troubling. And is this? Do you inquire into this stuff in your stand-up or in your your kind of writing and podcasting more? Um, I talk about it in my stand-up, but I always am grappling with like how to talk about a serious thing in a funny way, and like not to like punish the audience and be so earnest, and you know. Um, but I have to say, like, I'm more drawn to this is more interesting to me than doing gags at at this time you know so I like I said I still do stand up but I don't want to be one of those like uh hey I'm just like figuring something out politically on stage like I don't think that's fair like I think people want to come to stand up to laugh and have a break and not have to be confronted with like some like privileged person finally realizing that like things are real you know yes yeah, yeah. I mean, I came, I came yeah. to this after like a long, like two, the year before last, I did a comedy workshop in Erbil in Iraq. And okay. it was like, I met all my Iraqi peers who have been, you know, through so much. Like it was in Erbil, which was half an hour from Mosul, which then was under ISIS control, right? So some of them still had family living in Mosul and some of them had uh you know friends who've been killed in bombings in Baghdad and you know like they're Iraqi like they're no family has been untouched so like I was there like supposedly leading this comedy workshop trying to be like hey jokes help you know and like let's set up this alternative to you know ISIS are very or definitely were very powerful on social media and like with video and everything so the thinking behind the workshop was like you know, we can fight that with like humor and like, here's another way, like here's a different narrative, you know, of like embracing life and being funny as opposed to like uh, total destruction, which was ISIS um, favored method. And so it was really interesting. That workshop was really cool. And I learned more from them than they did from me. And um, it was just like, that really made me think, what really is the power of comedy? Like, is it powerful? I think we or I don't want to speak for you, but definitely I would hope like that it works. But then I see all these TV shows, like late night shows, which are such a US tradition, like speaking truth to power or whatever. And like, look what's happened here. Like, yeah, we have last week tonight and we had the daily show, but like, look what's happened. Like we have a super nationalistic government. Like we have like immigrants being criminalized every day. And like the way black people are treated in this country, and I don't feel like that was addressed before. So what are, what are these rooms doing? Yes, it's it's just kind of preaching to the converted liberal bubble kind of, you know, yeah. I, people aren't or people don't seem to be setting out to convert anyone. Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, I've been listening to what like Stephen Colbert is saying more recently, and he's kind of saying like, "Oh, our show is a space to like laugh and breathe and like not necessarily be preached to or whatever." But then I watch the show and I'm like, "You're just like making fun of Trump's hair. <laughs> like, what what use is that to us? You know?" So I think comedy is comedy and it's great, but I'm just more interested in other ways of actually, um, you know, I guess more political ways that actually maybe are impactful. So when you talked about this trip to Iraq, did you originate that yourself? Were you sent there? Was it your idea? No, I was, I was asked to go there by um, a friend of mine who I was friends with as a journalist in New York. And then he uh, started to work for this organization that was kind of backed by like the British and Danish governments who were working uh, like with young people in Iraq. And now they've kind of expanded to Syria to, um, to, you know, uh, support people there to give them other things to do rather than just um, be because like you know the education system is really buckled there and there's just so much um, there's like so much uh, catching up for them to do like say if you want to go to college but you're like 19 and you live in like Sulemania or something it's really hard to do that so they were like let's provide you know ways to support like there's our pretty thriving scene of like not so much stand-up comedy but like like satirical groups and like theatre groups and cartoonists and stuff. They were like, let's support those lads and see if there's any more people who want to join in. So they funded these a few workshops. And so I was asked to go. And so I went with um, Joe Randazzo, who was an editor of The Onion. And then he worked at At Midnight. And I went with Mo Ammer too, who's like Dave Chappelle's like touring companion. And he's hilarious comic in his own right and uh, he's you know from a family of Palestinian refugees originally and then he grew up here in Texas so he speaks Arabic and he and he speaks English and he's hilarious and cool so the three of us went off and did the workshop yeah okay how did you feel going into that environment I mean I was you know I had a lot of uh you know imposter syndrome because I was like who am I to go and talk to these people in a war-torn country about, like, this is why comedy is important. Um, and I felt, you know, just the usual stuff, like, what am I going to wear? Like, leading a conference, you know? <laughs> <laughs> the usual stuff. I didn't think really, you know, like, oh, I'm going to be, like, 20 minutes from ISIS. Like, I didn't, I wasn't worried about that. But I didn't, like, tell my family and friends that I was going. I just, you know, I said, oh, I said, I'm, I said to my mom, I'm going to Kurdistan. And she never clicked that, like, okay. Kurdistan is in Iraq, whatever. Sure. So it's like... Do you feel powerful as a comic when you're performing? Um, in the moment I do, like, say if I, like, win over a crowd or if I think, like, oh, they doubted me and now they're laughing and, like, I win or whatever. <laughs> but the the time I feel most powerful, which is, like, something that, like, is... Something that Mahatma Gandhi said, which is, he, I'm going to misquote him probably, but it's basically like, when what you feel and think and say like all matches up, that's like when you're, you're like at your most powerful um, or like at your most like true to yourself, which is like another way of being powerful, I think. Um, and I can't seem to get that on stage. Like I can get close to it on stage where I'm like, matching up my my brain and my words and my emotions but it's really hard to get that exactly I think on stage what what kind of bits are you doing when you get close to that on stage well actually it's often like if I've had a really bad day and it's like 
the sad parts of my life or like the bad things in the world when I'm talking about them that it seems to be I'm the most lucid and that's like I think not the healthiest for me so like what I've come up what what I've over the years I've worked out that writing is better for me because it gives me the time to like filter and edit and like really get clear like what do I think and feel and what am I saying here you know and that's become you know like I said I did stand up for many years and like I would get close to it but I think it's with writing now it's a more it's like a more um efficient way of like expressing myself and when you say you're writing I know you've written a book which I am afraid to say I haven't read oh don't worry it's fine yeah (laughs) I was doing a load of uh pre kind of research I didn't know if I had you on the show so I had to prioritize other stuff yeah yeah yeah. I know and it's (laughs) like normally I would have read your book and I'm annoyed by that (laughs) can you take time at South by Southwest to like read a comedian book book? (laughs) (laughs) um yeah so now I'm a contributing op-ed columnist with the New York Times which is a really good big platform to have and so I'm doing that and then I have a book coming out uh, with Penguin in the US in August. So I've written that book and I'm just like waiting for it to come out basically. Okay. The last time we saw each other was, it must be three years ago. It must be three years ago. I saw yeah. you and Beth Stelling at the Punchline oh, in San Francisco. Yeah. And I think it was either the, I think the following day I got engaged, I proposed to my yes. wife. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> or it might have been the previous, like two Yeah, episodes. yeah. So you were high as a kite. Like yeah, in, right. On, uh, high on life yeah yeah um I remember I remember talking to you at the time I thought your set was just fantastic and me and my wife still giggle about uh, the coat full of babies with just babies spinning right, right. out that bit, that bit of stuff and then not that we could remember it kind of photographically but that idea of like you know yeah um it just loved it I remember chatting to you briefly afterwards and you were talking about the financial pressure of being a comic in New York compared to being a comic in Ireland or in London oh yeah like, I, I, I think the bit that sticks out was you were saying you were walking dogs. Oh, I... Were you, or if I met no, I wasn't walking dogs, but I was definitely babysitting. Oh, okay. Bad, 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 bad. And those seem to be the two things that we, that we do when, like, new to New York comics move to New York. It's like dog walking or babysitting. They both pay, like, around $20 an hour, I think, or something like that. Do they? I don't know about dog walking, actually. But yeah, three days a week, I would, I would babysit when I first moved here. And because like, what the thing is, like people who in London and Dublin and stuff don't understand is like, you do not get paid for shows here. Like you could even do like, I didn't get paid for last night's show that I did. Like you get, you know, and actually maybe I shouldn't say that for this festival. Cause like, whatever, you know, they fly you out and they put you up and whatever, mm. but like, you do you do shows in New York and there's like hundreds of people in the audience and there's not even a question that you might get paid. Yes. I do not understand it. Like I was like, what am I missing? Like when I first got here, I was like, what am I missing? Because like, I, I come from London where, you know, like you do a few shows a week and you get like 60 pounds, 100 pounds, like not even clubs, just like your friends shows or whatever. And you're kind of kept ticking over in that way. Um, but that just doesn't happen here. And I think it's because, you know, it's like cutthroat America. Like, if you don't want the show, we got like 10 people lined up or yeah, whatever. Yeah, it's got to be supply and demand ultimately. Yeah, it? I think so. And there's just or, like or... not a question here of like, it just seems to be very much like you either like really make it in comedy here and you, as in like you're Amy Schumer or you're like um, Dave Chappelle or else like you do not make it at all. 
and you just stop doing comedy and like I don't know what happens to you you just end up in a different you do advertising or you like become a house husband or like I don't know but there doesn't seem to be like this happy medium of like oh this is like a great outlet for my creativity and I'm going to do this and that you know like so for me I don't I don't make any money from stand-up no I still don't really like I guess like so I'm here at this festival I didn't get paid for last night's show I'll get paid for tonight's show it's like five hundred dollars it's not like a you know living wage mm-hmm. and that's like good for a festival actually to to pay you that much I'm sure there's people here doing just free shows yeah. And it's like not even on the table. It's not even a discussion people have. They're like, yeah, like we're lucky to be doing this. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? It's, yeah. It, like, I do wonder whether w- what the market forces are. Like, was it mm. 40 years ago you could get paid for doing shows, but now there's so many people available? Or was it just never? It was always just assumed, like, oh, if you want to, you can get up and work. Yeah. You know I mean? I, it, seems, it seems extraordinary to me. It's got to be something about America and, like, about capitalism. <laughs> it has to be because it's, like, you're just, like, on your own here. Like, that's it. It's like, okay, you want to contribute? Good. We'll take all you, we'll take all you can, all you can give. Yeah. And then it's, like, you can be lucky and, like, there's this lie of like working hard enough but like I've been in comedy for long enough that I can see yes it's definitely about hard work I mean you've got to see this all the time like it's I'm definitely sorry, about again. You... you have to see this all the time talking to comedians it's like yes it's about hard work yes but it's so much to do with just like luck or like happening to meet this person mm. or like just it's very arbitrary and like even if you talked to me a few years ago I probably would have been like you know what it is like you just like gotta get out there and you have to do your writing and like I know a guy who wrote like 12 pilot specs in a year and you know <laughs> sit down and do your but now I'm kind of like chill out because it's just luck like, <laughs> <it's> like... <laughs> that is not a common message on this podcast but it's lovely to hear yeah because I... people really and the thing about it is too I feel like when people get lucky and get the break they kind of forget and they're like you know what I do deserve this yes they're like, yes. yeah, like for years oh. I, I lived on noodles and... Yeah. But you know, I'm really talented. I deserve it. <laughs> but it's like... Whenever mm. anyone says, oh, well, comedy's a meritocracy, I always think, no. oh, really? Are you better than, insert name, a brilliant actor mm-hmm. who isn't very successful? Like, mm-hmm. Is that what you mean? Like, oh, it's a meritocracy and I'm successful, so I guess I must be amazing. Yeah, I suppose... I mean, maybe we all deserve it. Maybe because we've all lived on noodles. <laughs> so it's easy to kind of, when someone breaks through, you go, well, I really earned this. Well, the rest of us also really earned it, but we didn't get it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I not yet or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So you, you, it's interesting you talk about, um, you know, you you give and they'll say, oh, great, we'll take everything. That's, mm-hmm. a, that's a really fascinating way to look at it. When you talked about moving to New York originally a few moments ago, you were you said anonymous. You said you could you had this dream of coming here and being anonymous why did you want anonymity what what was it that was attractive well I think that gives you much more freedom like creatively and I think that you know coming up in Ireland I think I had only been doing stand-up for a year and then I got a part on a hidden camera show that was really fun and silly and also really popular in Ireland so people knew my name and my voice and so it was harder to like kind of fuck around and just do fun stuff and like see figure out what type of comedy I wanted to do okay you know because I had just a bit of a profile which and I'm not being modest but like Ireland is so tiny mm-hmm. that it's like not hard to you know if you're on a show like people will know you mm-hmm. um so I think it was uh cool for me to move to a big city where like nobody had a clue who I was and so I could just 
literally like meander around and go to like secondhand shops or whatever and just like um, figure out my voice. So this is Maeve. Just a joy to talk to, a fantastic comedian, an incredible imagination. One of the things I noticed uh, afterwards in my notes, I must, get, I must start showing you some of the things I write in my notes beforehand. One of the things I, I very infrequently refer to them, I try not to have them visible during interviews, and then every so often I, I, I finish an interview and I think, I look back at them and go, no, I didn't even mention that. She has on her Spotify album such a phenomenal bit about um gang being in a gang and then leaving a gang and she says you you do know one of the things they say they have this phrase don't they like oh please don't leave the gang <laughs> you know if you if you are going to leave the gang try not to do that it's just she just does that lovely i think i mentioned it in the interview that thing like alex horn that brilliant way of coming at a subject from a completely new angle from almost like just an, an idea that you can track in her stand-up from b to a Fantastic. So more from Maeve in just a second. You all know about the tour coming up. I rattled off the, the next uh, part of the, uh, the the tour schedule. Schedule, I really minced that. I was in, When I was in Texas, I tried to say schedule to someone and I couldn't remember if schedule was the English or American pronunciation and I think I, I just said schedule. A former girlfriend of mine years ago used to think that the word bounce had an X in it. <laughs> she always pronounced it bounced and it was just one of those things you picked up as a kid i mean that's weirder if anything it doesn't illustrate any point but um back to mave shortly you know about the tour and uh, those of you who are still donating to the show thank you very much to everyone donating with a, a regular subscription donation via paypal that option is still very much available to all of you um it is a tiny percent of a fraction of an iota to to borrow the language of Stephen Fry for a second of the total listenership of this show that actually put their metaphorical hand in their metaphorical pocket and give me actual money so uh, if you would like to be included among them then please do go to comedianscomedian.com forward slash donate and you can support this show in a, a deeply alluring and sexy financial manner and um, you can also do that via patreon.com forward slash comcompod um, so have a look at that if you are signed up to patreon which is a really it's a very usable member thing i, I met a guy from patreon at south by which is what all the cool kids are calling it. Um, and they really are. God, they're cool. They're all cyborgs. But um, uh, I met a guy from Patreon. I had a really good conversation about Patreon membership and how it's kind of, how they're tweaking and changing the way it works. And uh, so I have to say, if you're part of the Comedians Comedian Podcast Facebook group and you were baffled earlier this week by having lots of people post the phrase, go team, that is simply because uh, I was trying to test a function of Patreon and how quickly... Uh, and whether people would respond to it. So apologies if that made you feel out in the cold. Um, it was quite a uh, just it was just a fun little test. I just wanted to see how quickly people would react to a thing. I do mail outs. I mean, not often we know that, but I, I spend so much time kind of uh, uh, talking up the mailing list and flyering people after gigs and saying, hey, join the email list. And then half the time I send a thing and loads of people months later, it turns out, didn't get it. So I'm just sort of experimenting with different forms of doing that. Nonetheless, uh, that is how you can donate at slash donate. And you can also sign up and get hold of all of the, the various goodies available, free albums and so forth, um, all from comedianscomedian.com. Now, 
I squeaked then. I literally trod on it. Oh, I'm just going to redo that so you know that it wasn't some awful bit of flatulence. I'm walking around backstage just before my Nottingham tour show, about to go on in a couple of hours. And when I think some comedians would be... Oh, God, it's really squeaky. I'm wandering around. I'm a pacer. I'm a backstage pacer. And uh, I'll try and remain rooted so as not to squeak further. Um, I think when a lot of comedians are sort of... Sort of... What's the word? Devolving? Relaxing into a some sort of pre-stage recuperative coma pre-show. I'm often doing admin, but uh, some of the admin I'm doing is to write the jokes for the second half. And I'm getting pretty excited about the second half after a crazy little gig in Mayford, me neither, in a little scout hut as sort of a fundraiser for a, a local kids football team. And there's some belting new gear and it's really working. I'm really enjoying the second half of the tour being the sort of preview slash workshop section. It seems to be getting the stuff together, which is uh, an enormous relief to me and everyone that's coming to the rest of the tour, I'm sure. Now, let's get back to the second half of this conversation with the fabulous Maeve Higgins. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So you're talking about coming from Ireland and... Um, yeah. Searching for something here that, you know, a bigger place is that in order to kind of prove yourself to prove to yourself that you could thrive in in somewhere huge yeah I think that you don't move to New York unless you're very ambitious and you're very like you want to prove something <laughs> but the thing with me is like I was never clear on what that was now it's definitely coming into focus and I'm like I want to be a really good writer and I want to like make stuff that like is actually like helpful in some way mm. you know um and that's coming into focus for me now but I think yeah like you don't you don't really move unless you um and I'm talking about like as a privileged person like you don't move unless you want to and you have like bigger hopes for yourself than what's like available at the time you know so I think that's why I left yeah 
it's it strikes me as particularly fascinating when uh, someone who does I don't want to use the name whimsical comedy, but yeah. you know your stuff is. How would you describe the kind of flavour of stuff that you do before I proceed with the question? Yeah, I would say it's like um, silly. I would say whimsical is a fair word (laughs) and it's kind of like storytelling and um, yeah, I think that's the type of comedy I do. When, when you combine that with ambition, I'm, I think that's a really fascinating mix because I think the whimsical comics that I know, like there's a a sort of, um, I don't know if it's a trope, uh, that's maybe the wrong word. There is a thing in, in British comedy at the moment, I think, where in the last five years or so, people started to do comedy knowing that they weren't going to make any money from it. So they were just free to take wild risks and be incredibly creative in a way that probably when I started 12, 13 years ago, I wasn't kind of in the wake of like, I'm going to play Wembley and become a megastar. You know, that hadn't quite happened yet. Mm-hmm. But it was sort of like, oh, I'm just going to gig. I'm just going to get by. That was the sort of the, the framework for, oh, you do this and you gig and you get by. Yeah. So I'm, I'm interested in, in what it's like to be a whimsical comedian like a really and I, I use the word meandering before and I don't want that I don't want my listeners to <laughs> think there's anything negative about that but something in like there's a lovely line in in your album that's on Spotify where you're saying that you have to do comedy because you I'll murder it now I'm sure but it's something like so I can't drive or type and I can't do surgery you know I'm not a surgeon and yeah. it's just such a wonderful <laughs> do you know what I mean it's a, that sentence is just such a lovely journey of coming at something from a completely unexpected direction you know <laughs> Um, so, so to take that sort of uh, wandering kind of loose comedy style, when you are someone who is ambitious and has got the gumption to uproot yourself and go to America, like, what, do you feel? I'm not quite sure what the question is. But... I know because even as you're saying it, I'm like, that's like something that I definitely grapple with too. Because part of me is like you don't want that career stuff. Like, you're fine. Like, you know, what's more important to you is like, you know, really experiencing the world as it is. But then I'm like, well, be honest, Maeve. Like, why did you move to... This is me having a conversation in my head. (laughs) (laughs) I'm loving the two voices. We're going to talk about those two voices at some length. So feel free to continue inhabiting them. What about me? Don't forget about me. (laughs) Um, Yeah, like, you know, to confess to being ambitious and to like wanting more than just to be like a sweet presence on stage or whatever that's like something that I had to kind of admit to myself I think and you know that does help you to like focus more I think um because as well I do wonder how much like because I'm female and Irish and like how much I chose that way of doing stand-up or how much it just like all these invisible forces like pushed me into that can you describe some of the invisible forces well the na- their nature is they're invisible and they're really hard and they're veiled and it's really hard but like they've kind of you know I've got some clarity around them like the older I get and the more I see my peers and people younger than me and I'm like oh like I guess misogyny is a huge one and you know also I think being me being a white person has definitely like made me a certain way and definitely yeah like me being a woman in this particular world at this moment in time just as much as it would shape like a man's comedy or a man's experience of the world but I think for women a particular thing happened I think with me where it was like I could see myself like okay people will listen to you if you're very non-threatening and like you can maybe get your message in in sly ways and you can get it in at the side and stuff 
Um, if you are this like uh, not yeah, I think non-threatening is like a good word yes. for us. Much harder to be your kind of Bilber punchy stand-up. Not harder to be that as a woman, but harder to the people react. It's one of those ways in which there is that internalized or not. I don't mean internalized, but kind of an implicit misogyny of like, oh, you're seen mm. as bossy. You know those those kind exactly. of those kind of ideas where you're like. Oh, if a guy does this, then it's fine. Yeah. And if a female comic does that, then it's it projects a particular thing, not because it projects it, but because everyone receives it. Yes. I made it, I feel like I made a hash <laughs> but you know what I mean. I know. <laughs> but like I'm telling you, Stu, it's like hard for us because we're just like dumb comedians. It's like really hard for us to like put it into words. And I feel like maybe someone I'm, in You are talking about us comedians, not, yeah, not us women. comedians. <laughs> <laughs> it's really we're really dumb. Oh, well, this is not what I expected at all from Fucking women, man. <laughs> um but I think like, you know, it's really easy or like I definitely used to be like, I want to do this comedy this way. But now I'm like, hmm, maybe a, like a, socio- a sociology professor or something could actually like break it down. Like, why do you do comedy the way you do and I do it the way I do? And like, yes. you know, who are the way our families were like, I was brought up Catholic. Like, I'm sure all that stuff is plays into like how ultimately like I, I present myself on stage, you know? Yeah. And I, I think it's it's an incredibly mature thing to be able to to step outside of what you were doing before. And or maybe what you're still doing in your mm-hmm. stand-up, and be able to look at that. I think that's why it hurts so much if you are a uh, skinny white guy with big hair and jeans. <laughs> if someone points out that you're a skinny white guy with big <laughs> hair and jeans, because in skinny jeans rather, because mm-hmm. you're because it's so much a part of your identity and who you are and how you express yourself. Yeah. When someone points out, oh, that's because you've been shaped by these particular invisible forces. You feel like, no, I decided. And you well, did you? You know, that, that's really, I've not really had another guest talk about that. I wanted to sort of stay with that for a second. Not maybe just in terms of what the forces are, but how you're able to recognise them. Like, mm-hmm. is it something, is it just kind of a burgeoning awareness in yourself? Is it something that you've, you've seen when watching older material of yours? I just want to talk a little bit more about the, the process by which you become aware of the decisions you previously made and how they acted upon. Yeah, I mean, I <laughs> Maybe think... Maybe the most esoteric <laughs> question I've ever asked, but I, again, I, think, I feel like you know what I mean. I mean, I know, it is indulgent to... But, like, the thing is, you... It's really work, you have to work on it, and you have to, like... I don't know when it starts... But I think I always felt a bit of dissonance when I was like, hmm that's me on stage but like in my head that's not it like I'm not hitting it like when I see my two-year-old niece she like doesn't have a huge vocabulary but she has such strong opinions <laughs> and I'm just like hmm I get it you know and so I think like for me it was just a lot of uh reading and like figuring out um you know like writing like I said is really helpful to me and like trying to think well what do I think and why do I think it and where do I fit in in this big scheme of you know human the human race or whatever um and I think it does take time I think in your 20s you're so in it and you're so close to yourself and you're sure that like you are the person that you are and that you've made all these choices leading to it. Um, and it's hard on the ego. Like, it's really hard on the ego to, to be like, oh, wait, like, I'm just a collection of, like, learned neuroses and, like, or, like, different, you know, scams that these people have been running forever. And now I see why, you know, where I fit in. Um, so, yeah, I think it's just a bit of, 
self-examination, I suppose. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, you know, not the most fun thing. How do you, uh, when you talk about writing, particularly kind of writing longhand, you know, writing not for stand-up, you know, not in a kind mm. of a, an abstract, hey, writing on stage, but actually mm. physically sitting down and writing for an article or, or a book. Mm. And the process of self-examination that you undergo, how do you stop that from being kind of a wormhole of introspection? Because I feel like that's... I, I wrote a show years ago that was kind of the starting point because I wanted to write about anxiety, my anxiety. Mm-hmm. And I, it, it, it was a torturous process that made yes. me very anxious and I was re- <laughs> reflecting on all this negative stuff in yeah. a non-healthy way. How do you, have, how do you, how do you uh, examine oneself? How do you examine yourself um, without it becoming a kind of vortex? Yeah, so two things. You have a good editor, so that's an outside set of eyes that isn't just like an adoring fan. Like it's like a objective as possible set of eyes who's like going to look at your work and think like, well, what about this? And what do you really mean here? And, you know, pull pull this extra stuff out of you. And I think another thing is, because um, we're comics and we're, you know, introverted thinkers, if that's even a term, um. I think it is a danger that we do that, like in that we do get deep into ourselves and go around in these circles and it doesn't help anyone, especially not ourselves. So I found the last two years, like looking outward has actually led me to understand myself more. So like when I was yeah, doing you a... almost sighed as you said that, like, oh, this is a really <laughs> obvious narrative conclusion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what I was looking for was with me the whole time. <laughs> yeah, because I didn't... I was like, I felt myself about like four or five years ago I was like I am so sick of myself like I don't want to think about this anymore like I'm going around in circles and like I just want to expand my thinking and so um you know one way was from my podcast I would interview a different immigrant each week from a different country and I would learn all about the country and like the system that they came through and I would also just learn about their lives and make a platform to uh for them to tell their own story in their own voices right and so um, but of course, that just l- led to me learning a lot more about what Irish Americanness is, what Irishness is, and what being white means really in America, and you know my own sets of drawbacks, privileges, blah blah blah. Um, so I think in answer to your question about like when you start writing about yourself and you get trapped, I think looking outward is always good, and also trusting someone else to you know, handing it over to someone else, uh, to a good editor. And like, it doesn't have to be like an editor at Penguin or whatever, mm. but it can be, um, you know, a good reader that you know, like somebody that's close to you that you trust. Did you choose your first editor or were they kind of thrust upon you by a book deal? My first editor in Ireland was, yeah, she kind of came with the with the publisher. So I, I didn't choose her, but I was very happy with her. Mm. But my, uh, like the, my current editor now... Um, I guess we went out with my agent to sell my book and I met a lot of different editors at different publishing houses and she was like really sharp and cool. Like I was like, oh, I hope that I get her. Mm-hmm. Sarah Stein, her name is, at Penguin. Um, and then my t- my editor at the New York Times um, is like, again, I didn't choose her, but I feel like really lucky to have her because she's like a lot more um she's a lot cleverer than I am (laughs) and she has more scope because like how much can we do like with one tiny brain right like just muddle through this like one thought like if I can even get to end the end of one thought it's like my day is 
bliss you know it's just like oh my god like we're so limited so I think having someone her name is Rachel Dry actually and having someone like Rachel like take my work and try and use the scope that she has to make it stronger is like it very valuable so just because I, I've never really spoken to people about editors before, because I'd love to have an edit, for the writing of a stand-up show, yeah. I'd love to have someone go, oh, you're doing that thing you do again, or, you know, whatever yeah. those kind of things. So can you talk about some of the, maybe uh, maybe pit them against each other? Like, what are the two different relationships you have with those two editors? And what are some of the strengths of those relationships? What are some of the most useful things they've they've forced you to, they've confronted you. Yeah, so I think um, that's interesting about stand-up because I think we could, it would be so helpful to have an outside pair of eyes on us. Like one of the beautiful things about stand-up is that it's very much one person, you know, and it's our point of view and it's like, you know, idiosyncratic and that's what you come for and that's what you get. But I, you know, what, are you going to do that for 40 years? Like, how are you going to develop and learn? And, you know, I think, like, finding your voice in stand-up is one thing, but then it's like, really? That's it? You're happy with that? Like, you're done now? <laughs> you know? Um, so, anyway, with my editors... <laughs> so my... Just, I'm just going to pause on that for a second because what an incredibly good point. I really thought, like, it's this kind of... I think part of me is a sort of a thing that I, I probably lazily kind of rest into is this idea that I'm always fun, you know, I'm traveling hopefully and I'm always trying to find and re- refine and redefine that thing but that is just one quest isn't it <laughs> like there could be other quests you could just go I've got enough of it for now something else could pull it in a, in a different direction yeah and I mean you know ultimately this isn't like to make stand-ups feel any type of way but like I just do think that we could help ourselves a lot more too because sure. All you have anyway in the end is you and your own little thoughts and your own brain and voice. Like that is it, like, right? But to try and expand them in ways that are challenging and hard and like definitely with with the writing, like I think I'm drawn, especially my writing, to be like quite maudlin, like quite like um maybe a bit melodramatic actually. Okay. Um so definitely my Times editor, I she's never said this, and it's a really sensitive topic to be like because it makes you self-conscious when you're writing. But I think that that's something that she cuts from me. Okay. So, like, she protects me from that, like, kind of Irish whiskey drinking. Like, oh, what's going to become of us all? <laughs> <laughs> like, I've noticed that she kind of tightens that out, which okay. is helpful. And what what is that actual, what does that process actually look like? Does she send back your work with red lines drawn through it or on a computer program with a... Um, yeah, just on Word, I guess, in the in this in the lines, the uh, spaces beside it. Okay. Um, with she doesn't show me what she's cut, okay. which is good, I think, because oh, that's it. I think that's what I was meaning to ask. Right. Yeah, okay. Right. She no, doesn't. No. So, which is cool because sometimes, like, you read over it and you're like, oh, that's really good, really strong piece, and there's nothing missing. And then it's like, wait a second, that was like fifteen hundred words before, and now it's twelve hundred. <laughs> <laughs> like, then you see what's missing, but I. I genuinely, you know, how there's supposedly like two sides of your brain and one is the creative and one is the editor, like your own internal editor. And like when they get muddied up, that's paralysis right there. So when I'm writing, I try not to, uh, and I have all these like crazy methods, but I really try not to let that critical editor voice in. And I just try and like go for it and then trust that like she'll catch me and, you know, I won't be made a fool of. Please tell us some of the crazy methods. 
Oh, I'm drowning out the... Yeah, yeah, that, that is 100% the, the wheelhouse <laughs> of this show. So, um, if my brain is really frenetic, I sometimes have to wait until I'm extremely tired. So, like, I don't... I keep myself really busy all day. And then I just sit down at, like, 1am. And, like, when my body is very, very tired and I really want to go to sleep. And then I'm like, when you reach 500 words, you can go to sleep. And at that point, my, my brain is often too... It's just worn out. So like the, whatever the, the residue is what I've been wanting to say. So you're too tired to Fight. critically block, to block yourself. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. love it. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> but those days are tense, right? Because like all that day, like I'm just trying to wear myself out and I'm just like, I got to write tonight. I'm going to write tonight. I'm going to write. And then another thing I do is listen to like very loud music, which is a thing that Stephen King recommended. Okay. And I listen to uh, very loud music on my headphones and um, if any th- if any thoughts come in that aren't what I'm writing, then I have a notepad beside me and I just like put them down there. That's great. So you know if okay. it's like bad, fake, like stupid or whatever, then I just like quickly write. Oh, that. like negative self. Yeah, or yeah, self- okay. negative thoughts, editorial thoughts, or even just like I have to buy avocados, like whatever yeah. else trips in that's not supposed to be there. And I also listen to the same, um, like when I wrote my last book, I listened to the same album. I listened to like Frank Ocean album, the same one. Like I listened to it maybe a thousand times. Oh um, so that it's like, now I can't hear it because I'm like, wait, I'm in the place. <laughs> like I'm like. Okay, so you deliberately overplay it in order that it creates a kind of hypnotic. Yeah. So it's noise. It's almost like white noise kind yeah. of thing. So there's something. Yeah, I think Zadie Smith uses actually, like she has a program like a pink noise where mm. she uses to write. Um, so I think it's probably this combination of like her advice and Stephen King's advice, uh, which is to just like drown it out. and um, <laughs> You drown it in Frank Ocean, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah! <laughs> totally. Like, oh yeah, that's so true. Um, so that really works. And then, you know... What used to work for me, it stopped working now, unfortunately, was setting a timer and, you know, not letting myself move until I had done a certain word count okay. in 45 minutes. Okay. But and will you, and do, you, do you stick to that? Is that, is that like, given that, that, for me, that's one of those things, like, if I leave a thing there, then I'll always do that when I see the thing. And, of course, what the, the issue you're trying to solve is self-discipline. Yeah. And so you don't <laughs> have the discipline to actually do the system that you set. Exactly. That's the challenge I would have, I think. Exactly. It, like I said, it worked for me. That's what, how I did my first book. And I was like, doesn't matter. If you really have to go to the toilet, you can just sit here and wait yourself if you're, you know, you're not allowed to move. But now that discipline has somehow left me. I can't seem to manage that anymore. The discipline of wetting yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I should say, I just wet myself. <laughs> walking around, piddling. <laughs> so, you're, so just to come back to the, the two different editors, what, what, what are some of the differences yeah. between them? Um, I Give, think, given that they're both very useful to you. Yeah, yeah, so like I suppose the other thing is like the end, the product they're making is very different. So like Rachel is in charge of the paper, which is like a weekly paper. And I guess the New York Times has a, kind of a voice too so like some of my phrases or the way I say things like don't fit so she changes them so there's like little technical things like that um and that's her brief right but then Sarah my other editor at the book is unbelievably encouraging and supportive like to the point where sometimes I would like feel tears welling up because like I think 
I think it's common of stand-up comedians and people like us in general to be, you know, have like a, a constant little trickle of self-loathing going on, like whatever way you work at it, it seems to be part of our makeup. Um, and she would just be so loving. <laughs> and like when you're writing a book or writing a, a full show, it's like you get go kind of crazy, right? Like it's a very uh, self-absorbed, like uh, tough process. And so, you know, I missed a big deadline for my book, actually. And I was sure, you know, I was like, this is it, you know, like, this is where it all comes crumbling down. And of course, you couldn't handle it. You got this deal and you couldn't do, you know, like, I was like in a bad place. And she just, you know, sent back notes on the latest thing, which I felt was like rambling and and terrible. And she just sent back like very encouraging, like loving notes on it. And also, you know, uh, said, that's fine. You missed the deadline. That's fine. Like, let's see where we are headed, you know, over the next few months. And that point was so critical for me. Mm. And like, that was not just an edit. That was like a human reaction that she had, I think. And like, I never talked to her about this, actually. So like, I don't know if this is like a method that they <laughs> you that they learn in editor school where they're yeah. like, Writers are demented, so yeah. we have to be very nice to them. Or like they, you know, I love the idea of editor school. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like choose your hat. Are you going to? Well, there's two ways we can treat them. <laughs> you yeah. know, a black hat or a white hat editor. Yeah. yeah. Are you going to be like a cruel? Because like, <laughs> I I wish that she would be sometimes. Like I was like, how is this lady telling me this piece is good when I know it's nonsense? Like I was like, I don't trust her. You know, like really wishing that she would be like okay that's it maybe you've reached the limit and now you know you're in you're in deep trouble here and like goodbye and we want our money back um I was like I was like why isn't she doing that I don't know why she's not doing that um ultimately her way worked because I got the book finished and it's like you know whatever it's done so yeah I don't know it's a it's a fascinating uh, uh, unsung position because like you can tell a bad editor in a second you know when you're reading something you're just like like this could have done with a hand I Um, I remember hearing I think probably on a Mark Kermode podcast or one of his books about how the editor of a movie is kind of more important than the director oh yeah with a movie especially I'd say don't like, I don't know anything about. I don't really know anything more than that about the role of an editor in movies. Just that surprising idea that yeah, the director decides all this. Like in the same way mm-hmm. that the actor gives the director loads of options mm-hmm. and then doesn't know which one is going to get used. I guess the director gives the editor loads of options, loads of shots, and then the editor actually makes the movie. Yeah, they decide like what gets seen. Yeah, it's this is. I, I don't know if I can say any more about that because I don't know anything more about it. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's true. I mean. It's true. I mean, I think it, they are such a funny, un, unsung, um, you know, it's a very powerful position that they have too, right? Because they can, they can change and uh, decide like what, what gets to be, you know, say, especially if you're in like a newspaper, you get to make, you get to say like, this is going in or this is not going in. Yeah. That would you know? be great. I just, given <laughs> how much I enjoy performing, but hate writing stand up. Like the idea that someone generate the stuff and then you decide which of the stuff is mm-hmm. the best stuff. That mm-hmm. sounds good. I mean, that's the best bit of any writing process that I undergo is if I'm writing yeah. a show for Edinburgh in August, 
July can be a lot of fun if I feel like I've got enough in the tank. Yeah. Because actually you can go, I don't, I don't need that bit anymore. Get rid of it. Oh, God, this is bliss. <laughs> I feel powerful rather than this kind of lonely, scared animal that I am at this time of year. <laughs> yes, know? yeah, when you're starting from nothing. and Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the worst. And, like, I think, I guess maybe a good editor understands that part too, you know, so they're not too harsh. Because, mm-hmm. um, yeah, because, I mean, they couldn't work without us, I suppose, you know. Tell me what your book is about, the first one. Basically, what I write is like memoir, comedy memoir essays. Okay, yes. So they're like short essays. And so the first book was kind of, um, I actually have two books that came out in Ireland and the UK. Okay. And they're both the same. Like they're both like comedy memoir essays. And they kind of cover, you know, um, growing up and the usual like comedian memoir stuff, like growing up and uh, being a woman and, um, you know, I wrote an essay about like having a stalker and what else? I can't even remember. And also like really silly stuff, like short form, like, um, I'm trying to like where I would imagine different scenarios that I was in and stuff. So just like comedy writing. And what, what's the relationship between the creative process for those and the creative process for when you're writing stand-up? Well, I think first, I was always so uh, lazy with stand-up. I mean, I still think like, so last night I had a show and I was on the on the flight to Austin, you know, thinking like, oh, I need to put my set together, <laughs> you know, like so last minute sloppy, you know, feeling anxious about it, but not doing anything about it. Like oh, yeah. that's like, <laughs> oh yeah, I know, I know that. <laughs> so, um, and the thing with, with, you know, writing for publication is like you you don't get away with that like you have to you have to have your work done um and so there's a real adrenaline rush with stand-up too right because you're like hey, i didn't even practice for this and like, i just have like <laughs> I'm, re- one. I'm rewarded for my uh, procrastination yeah, yeah it works i got away with it so it means that it must be fine to be on the plane <laughs> exactly yeah. i've been getting away with it for years and like you know it's often better because I'm like frightened. So like all these like whatever frightened hormones get released and I say something really funny and you know, like, I don't know what it is, but I think that's the process that I've become like addicted to with stand up. Um, and often it doesn't work. <laughs> you get on stage, you're like, Oh fuck, I really wish I would have <laughs> had some kind of set down and you know, like, yeah, it's, it's so scary. Um, but yeah, I think, creatively like uh, what I'm finding the most satisfying like I think I probably am repeating myself but like is when you're is when I write something it seems to be more what I meant you know whereas like on stage I'm still like and I it's not that like stand-up is lacking it's like me as a stand-up because when I see stand-ups that I love like um excuse me like Maria Bamford or Josie Long I'm like oh they're like in the flow, like they are exactly where they should be. And I'm hearing what's happening in their heads right now. And that's why it's so resonant. That's why it's so funny. That's like why they're so good, you know, but I haven't gotten, I never got to that level. And what what stopped you from getting that to that level, do you think? I think because my... And I should, I'm not agreeing with you because I think you're a fantastic stand-up. So oh, I think thank you. Mean, like when I, yeah. saw, I remember seeing you in San Francisco. I'd seen you before, but I remember just going, wow, this must be what happens when you go to America. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because it just, it seemed 
so coherent and exactly as you say I felt like I could see what was happening in your head right I mean that was probably a good show right but I would say that's not been consistent for me and also that I've never um and this is like so but you know like if I had if I cared about it enough I'd be number one or whatever but like I do think that I never applied myself to stand up in the way that I applied myself to other other things that I'm interested in whereas like I see stand up I just like I compare it a lot to like being in a bad relationship you know it's like a boyfriend that I kind of want to break up with that I never fully do and like he's a bit shitty to me but like it's okay and you know he leads to other things and whatever you know like that's kind of where I see stand up like I've never been like fully like in love with it where I've been like I want to like really be at one with this art form you know like I don't really watch that many shows like last night I watched almost a full show and it was a pleasure but I found myself like looking at the audience and like thinking about them and like thinking about what the comedian was saying in like a bigger way and you know thinking like you know I just couldn't sit there and enjoy it like basically are you happy doing stand-up interpret it however you like oh well I mean like I think I want to do better work is what I would say there yeah I think I like have a feeling that like I need to like be to to like match the moment that we're in I don't feel satisfied with my contribution is what I would say you know okay you look so confused no 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 I'm uh, I'm I'm I was trying to do active listening and get you to continue speaking <laughs> because I, mean, I think there's a lot more to get out of that. And I'm kind of one, it's not that I'm confused. I'm sort of trying to debate what's the best way to find out more about what you mean. And, and also there's a kind of aspect of it where I'm interested in your actual mental health besides just creative happiness. And I'm just trying mm. to decide whether to ask that in a minute or now. They're, they're so, <laughs> I've never been so accused of looking up. confused before on my own thing. Sorry, everyone. I'm, Quite late night out early. <laughs> like no, but like I know, like a little puppy dog. Like, oh, oh, wait, where did the where did the treat go? Um, I think they're very linked for me, anyway. Like my kind of mental health state and like how my uh, what, what my work, like they're very intertwined. So I think yeah, those two things are more than even like my personal life and my mental health. It's like. It's like, I think that's just when you're a um, creative person, right? It's like you, if if it's not coming out, then it's like you're in trouble. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's interesting you say, and we, we must wrap up, but yeah. um, with, with regard to this kind of more recent um, expansion of your horizons in terms of wanting to say something in the moment you know going to Iraq working with other people kind of looking outside of yourself mm-hmm. um and the effect that that has had on your creativity and on your happiness like do you feel that it's almost like be, be, do you feel that because you've recognized that you are uh that you could be doing more mm-hmm. to to say something more does that make you happier that you feel like you have more of a, a quest that you're on or does it make you less happy because you 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 know it, it throws a, a light on your previous work I think uh 
probably less happy. Like I think oblivion, like being oblivious is like a charmed existence. (laughs) You know, when you're just like, oh, this is fine. Oh, cool. Like, oh, cool. I'm going to go to Australia. Yes, Edinburgh is happening. I'm going to see my friend. You know, like that, uh, which is what I did for many years. And like, I I was always in my head, I was like, you're not really like, achieving what you need to achieve like with your brain and your work and stuff but I was like having a fun time (laughs) and then and now like as you say I'm like wait like this is maybe it's something to do with like in your 30s you're like more oh like this is the real world and like these are here consequences of like this is what's happening and I think that it's yeah it's hard like it's it's hard it's kind of a painful spot to be in um, and also realizing that you're not the center of the world. And not only that, like what you do is very, um, you know, at best, you can have a tiny impact, like at best. Like if you're like operating on full throttle, you're still just like one tiny person. <laughs> so like, I think it's, yeah, that's like not a fun realization, but like, I'm okay with that. Like I would, I don't want to be like a happy, oblivious person you know like that's I'm fine with this but yeah I would say like I'm not um not such a giddy ghost and would you will you go back to Iran hopefully yeah I want to yeah yeah I'm just trying to figure out like yeah this year um I don't have any plans to but I'm yeah I'm like working on a few different things that I'm trying to get back and do more cool stuff I thought it was really interesting that you described the first time you mentioned those comics working in, in Iraq or, you know, satirical or sketch comics. Um, to just describe them as my peers in Iraq mm. seemed to be a very conscious way of thinking about them rather than, oh, I was going over there and there's some guys out there that do some stuff. Actually, to see your, your peers as a global group mm-hmm. is very uncommon. Yeah, I mean, I think that... That's because, you know, we're, we are English speakers and we're white and we're Westerners. So it's ingrained in us to think that, like, we're better than the rest of the world. And, you know, we're not. We're the same. We're just all the same. Um, and but the other funny thing is the thing that I, so I, I was aware of that and I was like being conscious of that. Like I was like, I'm not about to go out here and like teach these, you know, teach them. like, no, that's not happening. Um but the other thing was then I went out there and, and like one particular sketch group, um, they were called Educated Bosch, so these Kurdish lads. And I was like, oh, my God, it's Pappy's Fun Club. <laughs> I was like, Tom, like Matthew, like, like genuinely like goofballs are the same all over the world. Oh, that's like, magic. It's amazing. You know, and there was like a quiet girl there with her boyfriend. And I was like, that's, you know, like I knew I know you. Like, I met you in Edinburgh. You're the funny one. Like, you know, there was, like, versions of us, like, there. So that was a really, um, like, I wasn't expecting that. I wasn't, like, that enlightened that I I understood that until I went there. And I was also, like, holy shit, like, (laughs) they have so much better material than we do. Because you know how, like, you're writing an Edinburgh show and you're, like, you know, okay, let's get real here. Let's get deep, you know. And then, like, what what do we have? Like, oh, like, you know something slightly bad happened to us before (laughs) but like talk to these Iraqi people and they have like proper real life and I'm not saying it's better to have tragedy in your life but I'm saying their experiences 
make them so much more in tune to like the realities of life and death and the big questions you know whereas we're like hmm train travel is hard I, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and that's I mean it is that's a really I feel like it's an exciting time to have caught you in terms of you kind of exploding and rebuilding and working out what you want from it next that include writing you know comic writing is more so than stand-up it sounds like you at the moment yeah to to just to be like where do you want to take it where can you see i don't know you know what's so funny because i had lunch with john hodgman you know oh yeah yeah Yeah. and he because uh you know we had this lunch because i wanted to thank him because he gave me a blurb for my book and so we did like talk about work stuff a little bit and at one point i heard myself being like of course I want to do comedy, but like, you know, with a point, like comedy with a point. And like, we both just like burst out laughing. (laughs) So silly, you know, like, oh God. Yeah. So I haven't figured it out yet. So a lot of rambling has happened on the show. You're definitely going to need your editorial skills to like make sense of it. (laughs) I'm living it all in, especially the puppy dog uh, accusations. (laughs) But um, yeah, absolutely. Comedy with a point. And that feels like, you know, you, I, I feel like I can imagine comics listening to this, snapping their pencils going, no, it's not supposed to have a point. Yeah. In a way that you obviously know. I feel but, that too. Yeah, yeah. It's really conflicting. Yeah. It's really conflicting. And so, so maybe I'm going to be like, you know what? Just leave comedy. But I cannot seem to leave it. Like, that's what I'm saying. Like, you keep coming back because my favourite thing to do is to, like, joke and laugh around. Like, that's, like, my favourite thing to do. Like, last night at the sh- I was backstage, like, you know Conor O'Malley? He's, like, oh, my God. He's, like, this kid. He's from Chicago, and he's, like, writes... How would you know him? Anyway, he's just, like, a very funny... He, you know, he just does backstage he was like doing funny voices and I was like dying like I was like legitimately like this is the most fun you can have just like being with a bunch of like funny people in like a green room that stinks of nachos and like talking shit about people and like doing impressions like it's so much fun you know but then there's another side to me where I'm like okay I'm writing a column about Syria today and is it possible to keep those things separate could you go could you do comedy for its own sake and life that has a point It's just like, how can you do that though? Everything bleeds into each other, you know? So I don't know. If I can figure that out, like, that'll be interesting, you know, to see. But for now, it feels messy. So that was Maeve. Do find out about her. Find out more about her stuff. She has an album on Spotify. I can tell you that much. She has a podcast called Maeve in America. She has more than one podcast. She has, is it Laugh and Learn? Laughing and Learning? Something like that. Really make an effort to track down Maeve's stuff. And certainly if you ever discover that she's coming back to the UK or indeed wherever you're based, do make the effort to go and see her. She has such a gentle and I did say meandering. I hope that didn't come across negatively. But it is this... What It's like... It's the appearance, the illusion of meandering. And she's just... Because of that, she's one of these... It's just one of those acts that you could just watch again and again and again. I think she's fantastic and uh, very exciting to see her at South By, brackets, Southwest. I kept wanting to uh, go on and say, Welcome, everyone. We're at S X By West or whatever. But um, 
I'm glad I didn't now. Sounds awful. So uh, uh, there is more stuff, lots more content. There's, I recorded another one with Nick Thune, fantastic comedian and now a film actor as well. He's got some jokes. Oh, my God, Nick is like... Um, he, he's like a former one-liner merchant who understands comedy from the inside, from that kind of fulcrum point that Gary Delaney talked about. He really gets that and now does a totally different style, but built on the bones of that deep understanding of how short, punchy jokes work. So he, he's great. Had a really interesting interview with him, which included him talking about looking through, being given the opportunity to look through Mitch Hedberg's notes after Mitch's passing, he was able, with a friend, to go through them for part of it. Well, he'll, you'll hear all about it, but if you know who Mitch Hedberg is, imagine how exciting that concept is to me. Oh, my God. So, uh, another non-live one with Nick, and then next week, as soon as we've downloaded the files, which I am sure exist online somewhere, and then we have the series of, from next week, we have the series of the three live podcasts I recorded at South by Southwest, which were with James Davis. Get your homework done on James Davis. Have a little look for Hood Adjacent on YouTube. It's genuinely hilarious. And sort of, I mean, I'm going to say, kind of important, very insightful and incisive comedy. Um, so check out James Davis, Ron White, a titan of American comedy and someone that I didn't know who he was about two months ago. But isn't it an incredible art form that you can just go, oh, suddenly you look at someone and go, oh, Christ, he's released hundreds of albums. He's been famous for 25 years. And so we had a lot to talk about there and I got to sort of explore some of his uh, stance on the world, some of which uh, is... Lose that. I got to explore his stance on comedy in the world. And, of course, Beth Stelling, who many of you will know from The Stand-Ups, the, the six-part half-hour series of uh, Netflix specials, and, and someone who I've, I've seen gig previously as well. So some really great episodes coming your way very soon. I hope you stick around and enjoy all of them. So I will chat to you briefly after. Sorry about the echo here. It's very much a backstage recording, this one. Um, I'll stick around and post Amble at you. And uh, if you don't fancy hanging around for that, then this concludes the podcast and I'll speak to you next week. Comedianscomedian.com forward slash donate to support the show that you love so much and that you're thinking, God, everyone else seems to be donating. I better get on board. Or you're thinking, wow, no one else seems to be donating. I better get on board. Either of those versions of the flowchart very much acceptable to me. Speak to you soon. So here I am. I made it to Nottingham. If you're someone who was coming to the Dublin show, I, I continue to be deeply apologetic. And when I woke up this morning uh, to discover there were three inches of snow <laughs> uh, around the house and the, the little hill on which we live, um, and as a result, the car was very precariously, didn't do anything with the car the previous night, uh, didn't realise it was going to be quite so snowy. Got a bit panicky. Really hoped Nottingham wasn't going to get pulled. I'm now in Nottingham. So I'm backstage looking at the uh, the charming sunflowers and pictures uh, that they have. I mean, it's a very nice dressing room, this one. I'm at the Glee Club. And uh, the... I mean, this is of no consequence. So what will I talk to you about? South by Southwest, my God. What a privilege to be part of that... To be just part of it. You get a little laminate and you wander around and when you go and see panels on things, they beep your laminate so they know you're there and you feel like you're constantly being like RFID tracked all over the place. And you almost certainly are. 
And uh, apparently a big thing with South by Southwest is you you go past famous people. Um, Niall Rogers was the most I managed. And I did see a talk with Elon Musk, but from another room watching a, a screen projection. But um, I was at the, the Westworld thing. I didn't. I was at the Westworld panel. I didn't get to go to Sweetwater. They built the cowboy town from Westworld and had 100 actors doing stuff. But uh, thanks to my friend Steve, I did manage to take home one of the hats. A black hat, which if you're watching that show, you'll know is deeply significant. I saw robot arms, a smart aquarium. I sat on the actual Batmobile. Uh, I just had so much fun. So I owe a huge debt of gratitude and profuse thanks to the brilliant Charlie Sotelo, who was kind enough to uh, broker my trip and uh, and invite me out there. So thank you, Charlie. And uh, I'll send you that ludicrous picture of you eating brisket as soon as I get it back from the developers. So um, really good fun. A quick shout out to everyone I met and hung out with and, uh, and had so much fun performing with, talking to and podcasting. Um, did I learn anything? I think I did. I think um, it's one of those places that is just so inspiring. I felt a bit like the first time I went to Edinburgh when I was 16 and I just got my mind unpeeled. I had a similar kind of reaction to, to this incredible festival full of electric cars driving around in 20-foot bubbles and uh, ludicrous human drum machines and death metal bands in every <laughs> shop window. Um, just... It was it was mind blowing. And I think I hope what I've come away from it with is a bit of a deeper understanding of the possibilities of podcasting. I'm forever saying that the guys in America are five or ten years ahead of us in terms of what they're doing with the form. There are podcast networks all over the place in the States. I don't really think we have one in the UK. Maybe there are some UK podcasts affiliated with one. And I suppose one of the most exciting things was being really reinvigorated about how this show is independent. I remember when I started, I would occasionally be in the sort of podcast top 100. I am now very occasionally as well. But nowadays, every radio station, every commercial organisation chops up and pumps out all of their radio output. Now that it exists, why not? Of course they would. They chop it up and pump it out as a podcast. And that tends to occupy an awful lot of the space. So I, I, one of the most exciting things was going to this festival, going to panels uh, about podcasting and the digital world and just learning from a point of view of someone. It just made me feel like a keen idiot that was just running around trying to learn from everyone and trying to go, yes, I've got this thing now. It's been going for five years plus and um, it, it's got a really engaged audience and a strong back catalogue and a good central point. And now I feel like okay, I, I've been just sort of maybe plateauing. Maybe I've just, I feel like I've been getting better. I hope you think the interviews have been getting better. But I've had so much else on, writing a new show every year, developing all sorts of other projects, that I, I, I maybe, I tell you what it is. I tell you, this is the single most exciting element of it. At a podcast panel, four of the guests, three of the guests were asked by Julie Shapiro from the Radiotopia Network, what is your most valuable resource? And someone said, my office, and someone said, my time. And the third person, whose name I can't completely remember, it may or may not have been Wendy. Um, I, it says so in a note I wrote down somewhere, but apologies to whoever you are if you're not Wendy. Someone said, management. My most precious resource is management. And it makes me realise that I, I just... <laughs> not realise, I've realised this several times. I do not use my time. I don't self-manage anything like as well as I could do. I perpetually take on too much, 
I answer every email I'm sent. Someone actually laughed on the panel when someone said, oh, because I answer all of the emails. One of the other podcasters went, you what? They couldn't imagine answering all the emails. I do. And, you know, not for some months, as many of you know. But my time is so precious and I manage it so often so badly that I end up um, worrying about a small, easily achievable thing procrastinating about it, it becomes this enormous thing. And as a result, uh, I end up freaking out and ignoring it. And then it snowballs and then everything gets, you know, I mean, this is another classic Goldsmith post Apple about anxiety. But through the lens of how I use my time and how I continue to, how in God's name I continue to do all the things I want to do and also do all the other things I want to do whilst doing all the things in the background. Oh, God, there's probably an app for it. But that's it. There's hundreds of apps for it. But what you need is the self-management to go, no, I'm going to use that one and that one. (laughs) And that's the thing I'm lacking. Is there an app that can tell me what apps to choose and how to activate them? God, there probably is. But how do I choose that one? Goodbye. I'm disappearing down a management wormhole. I'll speak to you next week. In the meantime, comedianscomedian.com forward slash tour. Come out and see the stand-up show. It's been so much fun. And we're we're in the, the second quarter of uh, of the tour now and I'm I'm really looking forward to it. I'm firing on uh, all gun cylinders. Not a phrase. Speak to you next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.